All right, so today we're going to move on to David. Um, up to now, we've been starting the scriptures, starting in Genesis, finding the elements that point to Christ, and they're all over the place. And um, we'll see that even as we move along. So, so today, I'm really, we're going to kind of hammer in on just an aspect of David, and that's the Davidic covenant and some of the aspects about him being a king. Now, my parents came to Christ about the time I was born, back in the 60s, right? And I, and I, and I remember as a young child growing up in the, a Baptist church in a small town in Bend, in Bend, Oregon. And I don't know if some of you older Christians have been around going to church when you were younger, that this idea of, of, the, of the coming of Christ was a big subject. I mean, it was all, I remember my mom had a refrigerator magnet, the king is coming, right? Everybody was talking about the coming of Christ. Right? I, somehow in my lifetime, that's evaporated, right? I don't hear anybody talk. Occasionally, I'll see a bumper sticker now and then, but, but people don't talk about the return of Christ or the return of the, of the idea of having a king that's going to come. I don't know what's happened in my lifetime. I, I surmise there's been a lot of... I'll put myself in the sort of this premillennial camp. There's been a lot of crazy eschatology, and I, I think a lot of reaction to crazy eschatology is people that have switched to other forms of eschatology and where, where the emphasis on Christ's coming has been lessened. But that's happened in my lifetime. I'm, you'll find in my thinking about Christ and coming, that's something I, I actually think about a lot. And I still have that attitude, I think, that my mom had, is this idea that I believe that Jesus is going to return. I believe he's actually going to reign on this earth. And he's going to rule with a rod of iron. I actually think Psalm 2 and, and, and what it says in Revelation, actually, I, I take that at kind of face value, that just as he came the first time, so he will come again. Now, I have friends of other eschatological viewpoints, and that's fine. But I'm a, I'm a staunch believer that Jesus will return and will reign on this earth. And I, and I think that it's necessary for, to fulfill the things that God promised to Abraham and to Moses and to David for these things to happen. I have a good Jewish friend that I work with. And he says there's no way Jesus could have possibly been the Messiah because look at all the things about the Messiah that were supposed to happen in terms of setting up a kingdom. Well, they never happened, right? At face value, they did not happen when Christ came. I said, well, you know, Jesus first had to deal with sin, right? There had to be a sacrifice, right? Otherwise, that kingdom, we're not going to be a part of it, right? He's going to come again. And then he's going to set up a kingdom. And he's going to, it's going to be a kingdom on this earth. He's going to rule. He's going to rule the rod of iron. The nations will be subservient to him. I'm a, I'm a staunch believer. And we'll talk a little about that. But this message is something that's echoed all over. In, so we'll, the main text we'll be looking at is 2 Samuel 7. And, but I want to talk about David a little bit and kind of the importance of David. And first, let me just open in prayer before we dive in too much. Lord, just ask your uh, spirit to be with us that... Uh, Things would jump off the page into our minds and hearts and, and, uh, and uh, our thoughts would be your thoughts. In Christ's name, amen. So if you just look at the Bible and sort of tally up names and look, look at... Now, so in this particular, I've picked kind of a top five names. Of, of, I factored Jesus out but for obvious reasons, but... If you just kind of count up names, right? If you look, if, you know, and I've split things up in the Old Testament into the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, and then in the New Testament to the Gospels and the Epistles and Revelation. And so these sort of give the frequency count, at least in the Word English Bible, of how frequently those names come up. 
And, of course, David doesn't come up in the law, but you see by the time you hit the prophets, his name is 711 occurrences of the name David. You get into the writings, which, which, which Second Samuel and a lot of these other things we'll be looking at is very, obviously very frequent, right? But look at his, his mention in the Gospels, right? He's mentioned 50 times in the Gospel, almost as much as Moses and more than, more than Abraham mentioned in the Gospels. Um, he's mentioned, and of course, he's not ex- often explicitly mentioned in Revelation, but the idea that Jesus was the, not just the offspring of David, but that he's the root of David was a major emphasis there in Revelation. So, he, so, so the point of this is you can see if you just tally up the numbers, if this means anything, David is a major player in the Bible. He's a significant person. Um, in fact, if you open up your Bible to in the New Testament, right, the first three words are the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Right? That's the opening breath of the New Testament. So David, so this point out is David is a major figure. And um, his, his life is, is and, and what he has to say in the Psalms is, is, is very crucial. So if you're like me, I like to have a timeline, kind of roughly when David, and, and nice, there's a nice, some nice round number with David. He's right around 1000 BC. We know that Solomon built the temple in 970 or something like that. So, so you can put David about 1000 BC, Abraham, roughly about 2000 BC. We think maybe a little later than that now, but Moses, depending on whether you're in early Exodus or late Exodus, but he's, you know, 15 to 1300 in there. But David, David's sort of right in the middle. He's sort of halfway between Abraham and the cross, right? So just kind of put him in a timeline. That's roughly where he, where he so he's a thousand, so this is important. He's just, like we were mentioning, Abraham is, 2,000 years before Christ. David is 1,000 years before Christ. Right? So that's important when you look at this. This stuff is old. It needs to be old. Right? This wasn't just something that was sort of cooked up on the spot you know, in the early, early parts of Christ's life. And another thing about David that's obviously important, we talked about this a little bit in Genesis, when you get the blessing uh, from Jacob to the patriarchs, and he blesses them, and particularly when he blesses Judah, it talks about the idea of the scepter will not, support, will not depart from Judah, right? And it talks about the lion's cub and all these sort of things. And so, so it's very critical that we find for, for the Messiah, to come, it has to come in the line of Judah, in the line of David. And, and, of course, this is as you open the opening pages of the New Testament, Christ is in that line. Matthew makes it very clear he's, he's a son of David. He, he has all the qualifications for being Messiah. That's sort of the emphasis. Right? We'll also discover that he's also of a different priesthood than Levi. Right? He's of a, this other Melchizedek priesthood that Hebrews will argue, and Psalm 110, which we'll hope, hopefully get to today. So, anyway. And just sort of historically speaking, so we'll come back and talk a little bit about how Saul becomes king. But, but, so the first king of Israel is Saul. Remember that they asked for a king, like all the other nations around them. Um, this really bothered Samuel, because like, you know, they should be just following God. And, and God says, you shouldn't be offended. I'm the, it's, it's not you they're rejecting, Samuel. It's me. They're asked for, but give them what they want. And so they give them a king, and they give them a king like they want. They just really 
Saul, who's a head higher than every, everyone else, the tribe of Benjamin, he becomes king, starts out pretty well, things kind of go south, right? He, he quits listening to Samuel, tries to take things into his own hands, and, and he gets rejected. And then, and then you have this character, David, that comes up from the line of Jesse, from Jesse, and he becomes king. And he's the one that will establish Jerusalem as headquarters, right? He'll, def- he'll get rid of the Jebusites and he'll establish Jerusalem. And, and that becomes Zion, the city of David. He establishes that. Then he has his son Solomon. And that's sort of the peak of Israel's wealth and, and under Solomon and power over that time. But, you know, after Solomon dies, he makes this foolish... St- he, he has young advisors that give him really bad advice because because he's giving very harsh treatment to people as he's building his kingdom. And um, he's debating whether, you know, whether I should let up or whatever. And his young advisors say, well, no, you should still be harsh on them. Tell them that, you know, if your father whipped you with whips, we'll whip you with scorpions, right? Or, like, that's probably not going to win many, many favor. And, of course, the kingdom splits, right? So you get to the northern kingdom. You get Jeroboam up in the northern kingdom. The kingdom splits into two. And then, then Rehoboam is left with the southern kingdom. And... So you have that split after that point. And then you got two different lines of kings. And then you still have the king um, Judah. Now Judah will be, so Solomon's about, so you're about nine, 900 B.C. And then they're going to go into Assyrian, or I'm sorry, they're going to go into Babylonian captivity at 586. Um, the northern kingdom will go into captivity at 722, the Assyrian captivity. And that kind of, um, kind of puts us in our place. So that's kind of a background Quick background. Hopefully you kind of, most of, if you're here today, probably most of you know the background with where, where David rises up. So, kind of look at the difference of the maps under, under Saul and David. You know, this was the unified kingdom, kind of the area. So here's the Dead Sea. Here's the Jordan River. You can kind of get an idea of, of what it is they ruled at that time under, under Saul and David. And then Solomon probably even expanded a bit more. But after the split, you have the southern kingdom in Judah, which is where Jerusalem is, and then you had the northern kingdom, which split off. So, um, yeah, so you can see that's... So remember, after that point, you have two, a divided kingdom at that point. So the, after the, the northern tribes go off into captivity, they never really return, at least fully. They become, they, the Assyrians release them back as sort of a mixture of people, and they become, we think of the Samaritans, right? And they had their own version of their Bible and everything. And then, then Judah goes off into captivity. They come back. They go to captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. They come back later and they reestablish Zerubbabel and they build a new temple at that point. So that's, that's kind of what things look like after the split. So, um, And another thing you'll notice is David is the standard by which all the other kings are measured. So, it used, it used to be, when I was young, the way we knew the length of a meter, if you'd go to England, they actually had a platinum uridium bar that, that was a meter. Under certain conditions, that was, now they, they don't use that anymore, but that was, the de- that was how you defined a meter. David was kind of like that standard. Everyone was measured by, did they follow David, like, you know, did they follow God like David followed God? And so every king is sort of measured up. As you read both in the northern and the southern kingdom, you can see some of them did. The ones in the southern, a few in the southern kingdom did. 
most notably people like Josiah, the young king, who found the book of the law and rediscovered it. Even though this is, a, this is an example of a guy who had a rotten dad and rotten kids, but yet he followed God, even at a young age. So, but he did, he did what was right in the eyes of God, like David did. Where other kings, most notably a king like Ahaz, did not. Quite the opposite. Um, example of someone who married poorly, I'll say, probably had a lot to do with that, is even with... Uh, Solomon, similar sort of thing, although David, so he would be in the yes category. But anyway, so the idea is David was sort of the standard by which all the kings were measured. There was something unique about David in his heart. He had a heart for God. He's the one that followed after God with, with, his, with a full heart. Even though, obviously, he had a great falls in his life. Things, things were pretty, pretty messed up in his family. So, so major character. Hopefully, everyone's sort of convinced of that. That <clears throat> so going back to kind of what I said at the beginning is, is David is a major character and, there's a, and a lot of these pr- we've looked at the promises to Abraham we've looked at the covenant with, with Israel at Sinai and we've talked a little about the new covenant now we're going to talk about a, a covenant in 2 Samuel 7 called the Davidic covenant and at this point the promises that were made to Abraham have not been really haven't been completed they don't really have all the things, all the different elements. Um, it's began, but it hasn't been fully completed yet. So I believe there's going to come a day when those will be ultimately fulfilled. Now, in Hebrews 11, it talks about Abraham was looking forward to a city built by God. He knew that there was more than just this earthly world that concerned him, right? God had something bigger built. But I also believe there's still an earthly kingdom that's yet to come, and and this will color the way you read a lot of the rest of the Old Testament, especially like the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel promises this day when Israel will be restored. All 12 tribes will be restored. And there will be a temple built. And they'll worship God. Right? And as God himself will be king. If you go read in Ezekiel 20, it talks about, I mean, it's, let me just, just pick one. Um, I'll pick Ezekiel 20. Yeah, it says, now of course Ezekiel's is written during the captivity, the, the Babylonian captivity. It says, as I live, declares the Lord God, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I, sh- I assuredly shall be king over you. God is saying he's going to be king. That was the original idea, right? That God, when they asked for a king, God said he was going to be king, but they want a human king, we'll give them a human king. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there, will ent- there I will enter into judgment with you face to face just as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant and I will purge you from the rebels and those who revolt against me, and I will bring them out of the land which they reside, and they will not enter the land of Israel, so you will know that I am the Lord. Right? So this is this idea is, is in, in Ezekiel is over and over again that God's going to reestablish Israel and all the tribes and, and will be there. This, um, they'll be forgiven. They'll be cleansed. Right? You get to Ezekiel 36. Um, 
I will, in verse 23, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I show myself holy among in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you into your own land, and then I will sprinkle clean water in you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put within you a new spirit, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart... Or, or, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring you in, bring it in about that you walk in my statutes and be care, and are careful to follow my ordinance. And you will live in a land that I gave your forefathers and you will be my people and will be, I will be your God. So you have to have somewhere in your eschatology a place to handle this, right? There's this promise that all the nations are going to be regathered and God's going to be their king. And, and, this is the idea of the new covenant. It's not going to be like Moses' covenant where the laws are written in stone. Right? You're externally circumcised. The laws are going to be written on your heart. And you're, and you're going to have God's spirit and you're going to know God. And the tribes are... So my, my eschatology is really bleeding out here. Right? So just, just you say, a lot, a, a lot of different eschatologies see this purely as promises transferred to the church. Right? And, and God ruling through the church is going to make these things happen. You'll, you'll quickly see that I'm, I'm not in that particular camp. Um, I, I, think, I think these promises to David and to the patriarchs were to them. And, and, to, and it, there's, anyway, that's a big subject we'll, we, we can talk about, right? And so in my eschatology, when Christ returns, as it says in Zechariah 12, it says, the floodgates of the house of David will be opened. They will recognize their God. They will see the one whom they have pierced which is repeated also in, in John and it's in Revelation 1. This idea that they'll recognize their Messiah, that Israel as a nation will recognize their Messiah and they'll have mourning and then God will bring salvation. And just like Paul says in Romans 11, they'll be grafted back in and there'll be a kingdom that will be set up and um, there'll be, a, there'll be a, a judgment and those will enter into the kingdom, and God will establish a kingdom on earth, and will rule with a rod of iron. That's, see, now, you, now my eschatology, all my, all my chips are out on the table. I have good friends that we argue about these things with, but that's, that's, that's my view. right? So this idea that there's a coming king that is promised. Now, whether you believe that king, whatever you believe, one thing that all the various Christian eschatologies agree that Christ is going to return, and he will be king. Just what that kingdom looks like is going to be different depending on what Christians you talk to, right? And the scepter is going to come out of Judah. You remember Balaam's seventh oracle, the idea a star will rise out of Jacob. It's a long ways off, but there's going to be a star that's going to come out of Jacob, and that's going to be the king, right? So, and I think that's going to be the ultimate fulfillment to the promise uh, with Abraham. So that's going to then... The idea that you'll have a land, the land will be theirs. The earth will be subservient, the nations will be subservient to them. They'll have a people, that a people that will follow them with their hearts. It wasn't just to have a body count, right? It was to have people that would actually worship God, and they will. And there'll be, the third part, there'll be a blessing to the Gentiles. That's us, right? We're grafted, we're, we're, we're part of this, right? There's going to be people, in Revelation it says there's going to be people from every nation, every tribe, every kindred, and every tongue. There's going to be a cross-section across time and culture of people that will be in the kingdom. You know, some will have to be resurrected. And so anyway, so point is, David's, David's important. 
he plays a, a key role, in, and there is a, there is a king coming. All Christians agree that Jesus is going to return and the king is going to rule someday. How that, what that rule exactly looks like will differ depending on what your eschatology is. So, anyway, so, um, so we mentioned this already, this idea that, that um, Israel rejects God as king. Go back to Samuel for Samuel 8, I believe. Yeah, so again, we mentioned this, that they wanted a king and they wanted a king like all the other nations around them which didn't impress God, but God gave them a king. He gave them what... So be careful what you ask for. There's oftentimes in Scripture where people ask things that they shouldn't have asked for, but God gives it to them anyway. God gives them to them anyway. He gives them a king. He gives them a, gives them a human king. And so this begins this era of, of human kings. And this is going to set up our text today when we get to 2 Samuel 7, by the time we get to um, David. So let's, start, let's go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel 7. I think you also find this in Ezra's version in 1 Chronicles 17, which retells these events. So in your kind of thinking of the Old Testament, there should be certain sections of the Bible that, that um, should always stick out. right? We talked about Genesis 12, where Abraham comes on the scene. You've got the promise to Abraham. You get to... Uh, Exodus 19 and 20, you've, you've got the Mosaic Covenant, the giving of the law. Uh, you get, here you've got 2 Samuel 7, this is, this is the Davidic Covenant. Jeremiah 31, you get the, the New Covenant. These are, so this is, a, this is a major chapter, this is a major section in Scripture that talks about this idea of a coming king. This is going to develop the pattern for the king that's going to return. This is the, so this is, this is the pattern we have. So, and by the way, if you've been doing your the Bible read through this morning, you would have read in Deuteronomy about God tells them they're going to ask for a king and what the rules are for that king. And this is this is clear back, you know, and they they haven't even entered the promised land yet. There's going to be rules about what that king. You know what the what, the, what were the rules in Deuteronomy when they asked for a king? What was the king to be like? Not to have too many horses or women. Yeah, right. And not to have a lot of not have a lot of gold and silver, right? Not to have yeah, not a lot of wives. It's not right. That's and they're also always to have a copy of the law that they read daily, and that they meditated on daily. That was that was what the king was to be like. Clear back in Deuteronomy. Right now, that gets blown out of the water. Look at Solomon, right? Talk about a, a mass of of gold and wives. You know, by the time you get to Solomon, all the all the ingredients that God said when you have a king in Deuteronomy, this is that that plan is thrown out the door. Matter of fact, they not only is the law not before the kings, they lose the law. They don't even celebrate a Passover for a long time. Right? It's not until you get to uh, the young king that that they find you know they're revamping re- part of the temple and they and they discover the law somewhere. Hey, wait, there's this law, and they, all, and they read it and. They have a, and at that point they have a um, Passover. So, so David wants to build a house for God. Um, so let's read it. So let's read Second Samuel seven. <clears throat> it says now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. Right at this point, God is he has set up a 
um, Jerusalem has his center. He's got rid of the Jebusites. He's, now, it's been a long time coming at this point. You know, between the time Samuel anoints David and he's ruling in Jerusalem, anyone know how long that time was? I think it's at least, remember he was king, so he was anointed and then he was king down in Hebron for a while. I think he was king in Hebron for like 10 years before he finally comes back and is in Jerusalem. So it's a long, and then he's, he's had to defeat his enemies, he's defeated the Jebusites, he's, he's defeated the Philistines, and he's, you know, he's finally got to a point where he can breathe a little bit, and, but it's been a long time of coming. There's been a long time coming between the time that he's been anointed and then he's actually king at this point. So, so now when it came about, so he lived in this house and the Lord had given him rest on every side. He's built his palace of cedar for himself. He says, is that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I live in a house of cedar, but the ark of God remains within the tent. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. So David has in his heart, he realizes he built, he's built this big palace, and he still sees the tabernacle, the tent. Right? And his desire is, well, let's build a house for God. So that's his idea. So, and there's going to be a play on this word house. So the idea, David wants to build a house for God. God's going to turn it around and say, no, David, I'm going to build you into a house. Right? So there's this sort of poetic play on, the, on this idea of building a house. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Should you build for me a house for my dwelling? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. Rather, I have been moving about in a tent, that is, in a dwelling place, wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, that I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So this is a, this is a rhetorical question that God has answered. This isn't something that I've ever asked for. And... Think about this, building, what is so strange, this idea of building a house for God? That's yeah, kind of a, does that even make sense? Yeah, I mean, there's, and uh, one of these, I think there's a quote from Psalm 61, which I want to, maybe, I think it's Psalms, or, or Isaiah 61. Let me read that. I think that's, that pretty much sums it up. I hope I got it right. I think it's, uh, I'll have a reference to it later. Oh, here it is, 66. This is, this is Isaiah 66. This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool for my feet. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, and so these things come into being, declares the Lord. Right? I created everything. I created the universe, and you're going to build a house for me? But I will, but he says this, but I will look to this one, at one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. So God, even though he's the creator of the universe, he's willing to dwell in, with those that are contrite in heart, that are humble. Right? That's the view he has. But it is, it is yeah, go ahead. You, you can see where it seems like David's a little bit on thin ice. I mean, the nations around them all have kings, so yeah. he's the king. Yep. The nations around them build temples for their yep. gods, so let's do the same thing. It's, yep. like, it's a little bit tentative, yes. like, is this the right idea? Yeah, and it's almost like God is like Dagon, like the Philistine god. Yeah. You know, remember when they take the ark there and the 
Dagon, the statue to Dagon falls before it. Yeah, there's this, this sort of idea that God, it is, you're reducing God to something that who could be in a house. I mean, this idea that he's, he's dwelt in this tabernacle. Of course, it's been a long time since Moses and the, you know, the Shekinah glory left clear back in Eli's day, right? That's what the, that, was, that was horrible, right? They had the, the glory of God would come down in that tabernacle and would fill it all the time. And then by the time you get to Eli, it, look at this, um, remember when his two knucklehead sons decide to take the ark out and they get defeated? Now, now the ark is gone, right? David eventually has to bring the ark back, but it was gone. And then, and then you had this I think, it was, was it the name of the child that was called Ichabod? It was the glory has departed, right? This idea that the Shekinah glory had left, it was gone, right? It wasn't, so God's presence wasn't there like it had been with Moses and before that, right? But yeah, so this idea that he's like some other, and now of course, if you think about the way that the universe, I mean, we're discovering stuff about our universe. It's just, it's so beyond our capacity to understand the size of our universe, right? And that our God created this. And the idea that we're, this, it's laughable to think you're going to build some sort of house or box that you're going to, you know, hey, God, this is a great place for you to live, right? And, and that's what Psalm 66 is saying. Yeah. And so, so yeah, so there's a little bit where David's kind of walking on the edge, but. <laughs> it's, it's, yes. I love the place where your glory dwells. Yeah. That's hard to say. Yeah. I want to worship God with everything I own. Yeah. yeah, and he's the he's he's the man who says I'd rather just spend a day in the in the temple just on the, just the fly on the wall in the temple than, you know, a thousand years elsewhere, you know. So he's yeah. So but yeah, there's a sense where he, and yeah, so God's saying, Look, you're not gonna build me a house, right? But I can imagine David sitting around saying, man, I've got this really nice house of cedar and, you know, there's this tent out there. It just seems, seems disproportionate. So that's, that's sort of the setup. And Nathan, Nathan kind of gets a voice from God and, and, and corrects him. Now God's going to turn this on its head. So this, he's gonna make a, there's going to be a play on this word house. So instead of David building a house for God, God's going to build a house out of David. That's kind of the poetic way to look at this. Is now then, this is what you shall say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says, or the Lord of hosts. I myself took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be leader over my people Israel. You know, David had, Saul as well, but David had very humble beginnings. Right? He wasn't even there to be pre- presented between, with Jesse's kids. Right? He was the one that was out still tending to the sheep. He was a shepherd. Um, you know, he was, I think, the eighth born. Right? Wasn't he the eighth from... You know, he, so he was the last one, the, the, the small guy that came in. Of course, so he, of course, he's the one who defeated Goliath and whatnot. So, and I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've eliminated all your enemies from you. And I will also make a great name for you, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Now, is that true? Did that happen? Well, here we are, 2024, we're talking about... David, 3,000 years later. And I think, even today, I think most people on the street, most of the world, probably know who David is, at least, you know, certainly in the Western world and a lot of the Eastern world would know. Yeah, I mean, David is, is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's in the Quran and all that. So, you know, that's why Michelangelo made a statue that still stands to this day of David, right? So, he's been, so... It'd be hard pressed to find, you know, men come and go so often, and we, you know, 
we may think of Michael Jordan or something. It might, people, 100 years if we're still around, no one's going to know who Michael Jordan is, right? So even my, my kids don't even know who the Beatles are, right? So it's like, <laughs> it's like you know, so, so it's like, yeah. So David's still around. I will establish a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will malicious people oppress them anymore as previously, even from the day that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. So this has been a while since Moses, right? They've gone through the period of the judges. They've had Saul as king. And now there's going to be David. And it's a long time coming for David to establish his kingdom. Now he's going to give them rest from all his enemies. David's been a fairly bloody man at this point. Right? He, he's killed his large share of Philistines and, and enemies of God at this point. The Lord also, the Lord also declares to you that, you that the Lord will make a house for you when your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your I will raise up your descendant after you who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will do, he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and with strokes of sons of mankind. But my favor shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And David is just... so. The, I'm not going to read the rest of this, but David is just overwhelmed that this response by God. And so the rest is this, this prayer that David reciprocates back to God. This is just amazed that, that the God of the universe is going to make this promise to me. He's going to establish this lineage this, that's going to be established forever. He's going to have a son. So this is where, as you read the story, you've got to realize there's, sort of, there's two things going on. We, we've talked about typology. The idea that there are people that are placeholders for future people and things, right? So in the short term, you're going to have Solomon, and that's going to be the son. And he's going to stab, he's going to build the temple, like it says here, he's going to build the temple, right? Why doesn't God have David build the temple? Do you remember what the reason was? Yeah, too much bloodshed. We had a time of peace and um, so Solomon, so remember he was a young kid, he was from the he was from Bathsheba, so it's this sort of illicit affair and so you have you have Solomon, and he has this wise request, this wise prayer for God. God says, ask of me anything. And, and he asks for wisdom, and this pleased God. So why, Solomon becomes very, very wise. We have a lot of his writings today. He becomes wise, he becomes wise but he still gets tripped up by false gods and, and women and gold and Horses and all the things that become us as men, I suppose. So <clears throat> he falls in that regard. But he's the king. He's the king that's immediately in mind. That's that's. Um, so this is his reply. Let me. This idea, this house. Let me get. So yeah. So the son Solomon. 
So, so Solomon's going to build a house. So, so if you can take this right from the text, and me, that's, we know that. Solomon's going to build this temple. And this is something we can actually, this is one of the first things that we can date with pretty good certainty archaeologically. We've got a, a date, and I, don't, I can't remember what it is. It's like nine, 900-something B.C. when Solomon builds the temple. And so he's going to be the one that's going to build the temple. And he's going to be the son that comes from David. Um, but there's going to be more to it than this, right? So Solomon's going to build the house, and Solomon is going to be the Lord's son. There's going to be this special relationship with a particular son. I think I mentioned this in the... Yeah, so... Yeah, so this idea of the house, so we have this kind of poetic term of, the, of house, is going to be, it's going to be a, a lineage. It's going to be his line, the Davidic line. Like, like we read in Zechariah 12 about the household of David, the floodgates of the household of David, if you have it in Zechariah 12. This, this idea of, of this, is the, this is David's line, lineage. His, the, those, so the house of David is going to be all the, the posterity of David. That's going to happen. The idea of the house. So there's this poetic use of, of the of the word house, right? And the idea of a throne. You've got a throne, and this is going to be a symbol that you're going to see throughout Scripture. The idea, obviously, as we think of today, that's the seat of where the king sits. That's where the kingdom is established. Is where God's or David's throne is. Where God's throne is. Right? That's. Um, so so you got a kingdom. That's going to be the the realm at which God is going to rule. Eventually, it's going to be the whole earth, and eventually the whole whole universe. And there'll be a whole new universe. I, I believe that that will be part of that kingdom. So, and then forever, right? The idea is this is not going to have an end. There's not going to come to an end. So these are sort of and so so you start looking at Solomon, and then you and you think well. His kingdom kind of ended, right? You know, in, some, in one way, right? So, what does that mean? And what's it mean to be a son, be established forever? Well, it didn't really end. So, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, so, this Davidic covenant you also find in, I believe, it's First Chronicles seventeen, and it's. One thing that's a little bit different, you read 1 Chronicles 17, it'll mention that, that, you know that part about when he disobeys God, they'll be beaten with the rods of men or whatever. That, you don't find that in Ezra's version, but you will find it in the Psalm 89 version. So if you go to Psalm 89, it's a reiteration of, of the Davidic covenant. In fact, if you can look at it. I think particularly... Yeah, let's see. I'll pick up. So verse 20, it talks about, in the, I have found my servant David, and my holy, my holy oil, I have anointed him. So anointing, you did prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil. In fact, the idea of the Christ was the idea of anointed one. So you get to Psalm 2, is the Christ is, is the anointed one. So that uh, could be a prophet, priest, or king. Actually, Jesus is, was all three, right? He was the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. He was the priest of, of Melchizedek's line. And, and he also is the king, right? All those things. Ha- so, he, so as a Christ, he's the, he's the anointed one. With whom I, my hand will be established, my arm also will strengthen. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I will crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my favor will be with him. And in my name, his horn will be exalted. 
And I will place his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers, and he will call to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I will make him my firstborn. And you're starting to think, like, are we talking about more than just David here? The highest of the kings of the earth, he will maintain my favor for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. So, this, so you can see Psalm 89 is reflecting this idea, this idea of forever. But here you're kind of segueing into something that seems to extend beyond David. Would, would you agree? I mean, that's... And this is really a common thing I, I find in Scripture where God will be talking about a person, but it, but it sort of segues into something that transcends that person. I think you get this with um, Lucifer, like in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28, where you have this earthly king that God's talking about, and but you know the king. One case is the the I don't know the king's king of Tyre, and then one's the king of Babylon, I suppose. And then they clearly at some point though you're no longer talking about the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon. You're, ta- you're talking about some other some other being, right? Here you can kind of see that sort of goes from from David into some of this this eternal covenant that's going to be established and this eternal. Um, favor that's going to, and his throne is the days of heaven. Right? This, so something sort of goes beyond just simple earthly reign. Right? So again, the covenants, re- I won't um, get into this in Psalm 132. Let me get Jeremiah 33. This is another. Jeremiah 33, 19. And this is part of why I, I, I kind of I kind of hold back on people that think that, that the church has become the new Israel, has replaced Israel. This is this is the kind of things that kind of make me shirk a little bit from that. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, This is what the Lord says, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that the day and the night do not occur in their proper time, then my covenant with David my servant may also be broken. Right? So he's saying, Look look at all the promises I've made, but if you talk about the sun and the moon and everything else, if, if those, those are no good, then, then so is my promise. He's saying his, his promise to David is sure. My servant may also be broken so that he will not have a son to reign in his place and with the Levitical priests by ministers. As the heavenly lights cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of my servant David and the Levites who serve me. Right? This, is, this is establishing the idea that David's going to be king and that's that's a covenant that is assured. That's a promise you can bank on. That's going to happen in some way. This isn't, and that's a promise to David and his descendants. Right? There is a sense in which we are descendants of Abraham, and we are descendants of David in, in some spiritual sense. I agree with that. There's, but but I don't think that's God's done with David. I don't think God is done with Israel. That's that, again my premillennialism is bleeding through here. So not everyone agrees with me on this. So. But, say, but so there's the, this Davidic covenant is important. Um, so then we get to Jesus and Jesus' relationship with this. So that's why it's so important when the New Testament opens, it says, it says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, right? Christ is the anointed, right? It wasn't his last name, right? This is Jesus the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the son of David, son of Abraham. That those titles are very meaningful when you say that he's the son of David. 
You'll even find in rabbinical writings that the that they were hesitant to crucify. There were some rabbis that were hesitant to crucify Jesus because they knew he was so close to the line of Judah and line of the king. There wasn't any dispute that he was in the royal line. And Matthew makes that very, very clear. He's in the royal line. He's a son of David. In fact, all of Matthew 1, you have this, these 14 generations, right? 14, if, if using he, Hebrew gematria, they, that 14 is the number of David. So he even rearranges the genealogy. So they're not, they're not literally correct, but they're correct in a larger sense. They're correct in the sense that these are pointing to David as the rightful, or, or Jesus is in the rightful line. He is the line of David. He is the Messiah. He has all the credentials for being Messiah, right? And his regal status. So you get his birth announcement. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Picking up in verse 31. And you've got to love the interplay between the New and Old Testament. If you read the opening of 1 Samuel, and Samuel, I think you get in 1 Samuel chapter 2, is you have Hannah and her prayer. And so, <clears throat> here, and then this is going to segue into Mary's prayer. But before that, th- this all kind of runs, runs together. So I, I'm going to pick up in verse... This is, this is uh, the angel Gabriel talking with Mary. In verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for God has found favor, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you shall give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So there it is, right from the mouth of the angel Gabriel. Gabriel, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So so right there, straight from the mouth of Gabriel, this is a tie-in with the Davidic covenant, and the ultimate fulfillment of that is going to be in Jesus. And he's he's physically in the right line, but he's also um, the promised one. He's the son of God. He is the son. He is the ultimate son. So... That's in the birth announcement. And of course, you, you also know Isaiah 9, which we read every Christmas, about the, that there will be a, a manual and he'll... he'll the, well, let's read it. I'm going to read Isaiah. This is, this is, of course, in Isaiah 7, you have the virgin birth. And then you get to Isaiah 9. So remember the emphasis is on a son... So this is, this is with Isaiah, and, and you, get a, you get a similar, just like with David and Solomon, you get an interplay in Isaiah between Isaiah's son, like Meir Shalahashbaz, and his children, and their kind of short-term fulfillment, and then, but there's also this longer fulfillment that goes way beyond the sons of Isaiah. So they're talking, you're, you're, by the time you get to this point, you're talking about someone that's not a son of Isaiah here. For, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish it. Right? This, is, this is clearly tying in with what we're seeing in the, in the birth in Luke to the birth of Christ, who is going to be obviously more than just a king, 
He's the, he's the what? The eternal father, prince of peace. I mean, this is the wonderful counselor, mighty God. Even his deities rolled in to this, this statement. So, so, the, so the scripture is going to make it very, very clear that this son is more than just a son. And this son, and the New Testament is going to make this clear that he is the son of David, but he's the son of God. And he's deity. So with that in mind, I'm going to skip forward. And I want to talk about um, Psalm 110. We've got 10 minutes to talk about Psalm 110. But that, and let's see. I'm going to, I'm going to pick Luke. I'm going, to, I'm going to jump to Luke. Then, but then I'm just, Jesus is going to quote the opening verse of Psalm 110. But I love the setting. This is, this is the master using scripture in a, it, to silence his enemies. And I love it. And this is going to tie back into Psalm 110, which is, which is a messianic psalm. In fact, Psalm 110 is the most quoted, I think, scripture in all of the New Testament. Most, old, most quoted Old Testament. I think it's at least eight references, direct references. And it's implicitly referenced all the time. Psalm 110 is foundational. And Jesus is, is going to use this. I'll pick Luke 20. <clears throat> Although, looks like all the synoptics record this. <clears throat> this is a wonderful section. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, summarize until we get up to, um, to verse 40. So, 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 the first question, so there's a set of priests that come before him and ask him about paying taxes to Caesar. They come to Jesus, you know. They they, they kind of they they set him up. Um, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to anyone. Right? You can tell when you're being set up, right? But you teach the way of God on the basis of truth. Are they are they being honest? And there is no this this is a classic case of they're asking a question not to get an answer. They're asking a question to to trip Jesus up. Is it permissible for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Right? And then, of course, we all know the story. He picks up the coin and, uh, you know, pay, pay, to, pay to Caesar what's Caesar's and, and give to God what's God's, right? So that's the first one. And then the next section, the, the Sadducees, who don't believe in a resurrection, and they have this kind of silly story about this guy that, you know, the, the woman that marries all these men, when they get in the resurrection, you know, whose wife is she going to be? And, and God knowing that they really only held to the Pentateuch for their scripture, he quotes right out of the, you know, you, you don't know the power of God. If, if, when God says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if, if he's not much of a God if those gods are dead, right? The, the idea of those guys are alive. There's a res- and the only way they can be alive is if there's a resurrection, right? So, and then they get to the third set of characters that ask him um, about what is the most important um, is that mistake? Did I miss that in this part? So they talk about it. Yeah. Okay, I guess maybe that's in the other one. Did I miss that? There's a point where we're in this conversation where, where um, Christ quotes the Shema, right? They ask him, what are the most important elements of the law? You know, that you shall love the, 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 the hero of Israel, the Lord is one. Right? So that's the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. And then, and then he says, you know, that you shall... Um, you, you shall devote your life to you, know, you shall worship God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then finally, they get to the to the next part where they ask him a question. 
so he, he, he answers in verse 40 says, For they did not have the courage to question him any longer about anything. But then he asked them a question. He says, But he said to them, How is it that the Christ is David's son? Because everything's been established so far that the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So that's the question that he puts forth to them. So, so it's well established. Everybody understands the Messiah is coming. He's going to be the son of David. They establish that. And they will all agree that Psalm 110, if you turn to Psalm 110, they all agree that this is what this psalm is saying. Now, this is a psalm by David. So Jesus is asking a question. So they, so he, they already know he comes from the line of David. He's, he's a descendant of David. He's asking them, if he's his son, then what do you do with verse 1? So from the Masoretic text, it says... It says the Lord, and, you'll, and in your Bible in Psalm 110, you'll get all caps. So this is the divine name. This is Yahweh. And it says the my Lord. Now, there's arguments among Hebrew scholars, because I think it depends. Now, this is where I'm out of my element, because it somehow depends on the vowel points and stuff, which the Masoretes had added, whether it's Adonai or Adonai. And there's a big, so Adonai would be a, um, more of a, a human, where Adonai would be, that's God Almighty himself. Now, if you go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls and look at this, it's Adonai. There's no vowel points if you go back far enough in the original text. There's no, the, the, so you can't, evidently you can't distinguish between Adonai, Adonai, and Adonai, right? But I, my argument's going to be it doesn't matter. You can, if you understand the question, or if you understand what David is say, saying, this makes perfect sense, right, what he's talking about. So who is David? David is king. Who's over David at this point? Who's, who would David answer to? God. God. Who else? Yeah, the prophets will talk to him. But, there's, but when a decision is made, is there, is there some other Lord that, that David would answer to? So here it's understood. When the, when the Lord said to my Lord, the only people that can be talking would be people that would be his superiors. Now, if Christ, and, every, and they all understood that this was, talk, this was a messianic psalm from the context of the rest of the thing. So this, this Lord, this second Lord, is Messiah by context. So here's the riddle that Jesus puts to them. If, now, if the Messiah is merely just going to be an offspring of David, what in the world would David be calling him my Lord for? It makes no sense. How is that possible? And they don't have an answer for the question. Do you understand the, 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 by context what he's saying? There's no one else that he would call Lord. This and Lord is, is and the Lord said, sent forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your, your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power and in your holy garments. From the womb of the morning and the dew of your earth will be yours. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. And then you get this idea of this priesthood that's going to, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Filling them with corpses, he will shatter their chiefs over the whole, whole wide earth, and he will drink from the brook by the water. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Right? This is a messianic psalm. And the Lord, and everyone understood this as the Lord. So, they, so Jesus is asking me a question. If, if the Messiah is going, doesn't even exist yet, right? if, he's, if he's merely just a, 
an offspring that hasn't come into being yet, hasn't been birthed yet, how is it that David calls him Lord? That's, that's the riddle. We know the answer to the riddle. What's the answer to the riddle? And Jesus is, doesn't give him the answer here. What's Jesus saying about himself as the answer to the, to the riddle? Right? There's God and there's, there's a Messiah that David is calling Lord. And this Lord is someone that's... Right? It's, not, it's not his great-great-great-great-grandson he's calling Lord. It's someone that... right. That's that's the riddle. Right. It's uh, before yes. Abraham was I am. Yes. So Jesus is basically claiming here that look, there's something more than just a physical descendant of the Messiah here that's going to happen later. This there's an implication to this psalm that there's a Lord, there's a Messiah that pre-exists before David. Now we know this becomes completely settled by the time we get to the book of Revelation. Because He's Lion of the tribe of Judah, but what's, he's also called, at least in two places, the Root of David. So he's not just the offspring. And that's the answer to the riddle. John gives us the answer to the riddle, that the Messiah is also the Root. And what do you mean, what's the difference between the offspring and a Root? Well, the Root comes, before, so, the, so the, the Lord pre-existed David, because he's the Root. So David came from the Lord, Lord, he's his master, he pre-exists this Right? And yet, he is going to be from the son of David. So Christ, by his riddle, is pointing out, look, I'm Messiah, and I was around when David, and David was called me Lord. So I'm more than just the son of David. I am, I am the Messiah that came before David, and I'm the one that he called Lord. And there's only people that would be above, above David is God. Right? There's no other choices. So there's an implication not only that Messiah pre-exists David, but that he has the command of God himself in that conversation, right? All wrapped up in that riddle, right? So this argument about whether it's Adonai Adonai or Adonai, I mean, if it was just a man, even if you just took the sense that this Messiah was a man, let's say, let's, let's factor the God equation out for a minute, it still doesn't change the riddle. How is David calling this man Lord if he didn't even exist yet? Right? So by context, it doesn't, you know, and of course, Adonai, by the context of what you read in the rest of this, he's clearly someone that's, that's superior to David, that's not just a man. Right? So the whole argument of this being Adonai and being a fleshly person doesn't even really make sense. And it doesn't change Christ's riddle one bit. It's the pre-existent, yeah. So, yeah. Um, wait, I... I've wrestled with the logic of this as many of us have yeah. for a long time and the importance of it. Yeah. But you know, ultimately, because I can tell you what the Orthodox Jewish interpretation of this song mm-hmm. is, ultimately, for, for everything that you said to work, we have to believe that Jesus is a better rabbi than all of the other rabbis. That Jesus' interpretation of the song is correct. Mm-hmm. Because other rabbis will say, you Christians are wacko. Yeah. You don't understand Hebrew. He said, you're assuming that this is in the first person, and David's talking. No, no, no. This is in the second person. Somebody who is in David's retinue is saying, the Lord, Jehovah, spoke to my Lord, spoke to David. Ah, yeah. So, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, I, uh, it's only my faith in Jesus Christ that allows me to be this confident in the logic that you presented. Right. I believe that he is just, he is just the world's best rabbi. 
And I have to believe that Jesus mm-hmm. is interpreting yeah. the psalm correctly yeah. and the Jewish yeah. scholars are yeah. not. Yep. Yeah. Right. And a lot of the New Testament arguments are hinged on this particular psalm, right? You get into Hebrews and, and um, yeah. So, anyway, so that's sort of the real. So we've just... So we've set the pieces in place. So hopefully I've established this idea that there's going to be this king that's going to come from David. So, this, so next week, I want, to, I want to shift focus and look at the cross. Because it's not only about a coming king. There's also going to have to be, this, be a sacrifice. There's going to have to be a death. And so we're going to dive into Psalm 22. So this week, in your, read Psalm 22. Everyone knows the opening verse. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, I... I've been asked, of all the questions in the Old Testament, I've been asked the most. People have asked me most about that one. And I have, a, I have a completely different take than probably most sermons you've ever heard. I believe the cross is bookended. You're going to the word it, at the, for he has accomplished it at the very end. I get the same it that Jesus said when it is finished, right? There's an event. We want to look at that in depth because that gives us a preview of the events of the cross in David's life. And what does that mean? So... So I'll read Psalm 22, and that's what we'll, we'll look at next week. So, All right. We're over time a little bit. I'll, I'll close in prayer. Lord God, uh, we do long for your coming, and, and we're long just looking at crazy things. We, we long to have a righteous king reign. And, and uh, Lord, in your own time, Lord, it, but you say we should ask for you to come. Lord, we ask you to come and come soon. And, and we look forward to that day. We thank you for your grace and mercy, that, uh, and that's kind of why you're waiting. And, in Christ's name, amen.